We have been studying sin and judgment in the New Testament. Sin and judgment in the New Testament. Why? Because people who claim to be Christians, when actually they are not Christians, but fake Christians, they say the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace. And they make a contrast between the two gods. That means that they are considering the Old Testament God a false god and an idol, or a capricious God who changed his character between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But our scripture, Malachi 3, 6, says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. There is a song. The song in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4, it's often known as the song of Moses and the Lamb. In Revelation 15, this song, which brings Moses and the Lamb, Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one <clears throat> song brings both of these individuals together in unity, in harmony. That is Moses of the Old Testament in the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He is one and the same in doctrine, in theology, as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. That's why there is one song that the two have composed for us to sing. And what is it? What attributes are highlighted in this song of Moses and the Lamb? What attributes? Are they love, grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience, long-suffering? Are those the attributes God chose to highlight in this song? No. Notice it says in verse 3, Revelation 15, 3, Great and marvelous are your works. Well, what works does he have in mind? O Lord God, the Almighty, his almighty works. And what does the Almighty God do? He is righteous and true in his ways. He is righteous and true. He is king of the nations. A king is supposed to practice righteousness and justice. God does that. In verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? The fear of God. Why should we fear God now? We should fear God now before his judgment comes. Revelation 14.7 14.7 says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Revelation 15.4 continues, that because of the fear of God, we should glorify his name, which is also what 14.7 said. The way we glorify his name is by fearing him. Further, 14, 15 verse 4 says that he alone is holy and all the nations will worship before him because of God's righteous acts. They will worship him because he is holy and righteous. This is 
the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. When we minimize the righteousness, holiness, judgment, wrath of God in the New Testament, we are perverting the New Testament. We are untaught and unstable souls who distort the scriptures to our own destruction. 2 Peter 3, 14-18. It is not something we can do, and we should not tolerate it, because when we tolerate it, we fail to understand what the Bible says about sin and the judgment to come. Prepare for the judgment to come in the future by being discerning and judging righteously sin right now. If we judge sin correctly now, we'll be ready for the judgment to come. Well, this little epistle, this little letter that Paul the Apostle wrote while a prisoner, a few of his letters were while he was in prison, he wrote this one to a certain Philemon, a small letter. This letter has much to say, much to compare and contrast as to what is righteous and what is wicked, what is good and what is evil. He addresses this letter to three individuals, though the primary one is Philemon. He is mentioned first in verse 1. Philemon is mentioned in verse 1, Aphia in verse 2, and thirdly, Archippus in verse 2. Let's read the letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus." I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel." But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This letter that Paul wrote, it says in verse 1, he wrote as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, they are together in this predicament. And Timothy, he identifies as our brother. These two write this letter to Philemon, verse 1, who is called our beloved brother and fellow worker. And then in verse 2, Aphia, our sister. And verse 2, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. These are the three individuals. And fourthly, to the church in their house. A church was meeting in the house. The letter is essentially appealing to Philemon, a master. He owned a slave. The slave's name is mentioned in verse 10, Onesimus. Onesimus fled. Onesimus met the Apostle Paul. Perhaps he got in trouble and was in prison and then released from prison, but Paul's still in prison. Somehow, some way, while Paul's a prisoner, Onesimus meets him, and Paul preaches the gospel to him. Onesimus believes it. And for a period of time, Paul saw the change in the character, the change in the attitude, the change in the life of Onesimus. And since he was being released, most likely released, he was then... Encouraged by the Apostle Paul to return to his master, his master Philemon. Because of the nature of the way it is described, it seems as though Onesimus wrongly, wrongfully fled from his slavery. If it were, in fact, the case that Philemon was mistreating the slave, and we will see examples of mistreatment, If the master was mistreating the slave, then it's likely the case that the apostle would not have asked Onesimus to return. And so, while he is gone, Onesimus is gone from his master, a period of time has passed where Onesimus becomes a debtor to Philemon because he's not working for him when he's supposed to work for him. This debt, the apostle says, Philemon, I I know you'll handle it in the right way, but if I need to pay to make up for a loss of time because Onesimus fled from you, I will pay that debt. I just want you both to be restored in the master-slave relationship 
in the actual institution of slavery. But more importantly, I want you to now understand that your runaway slave who has returned is a believer in Christ. You are a believer, Philemon. The church in your house are believers. All of you should receive him back as slave, but more importantly, as brother. And rather than commanding and ordering, though the apostle has that authority, he mentions so, he appeals to him so that he might elicit sympathy, elicit love, elicit compassion, elicit a true desire for a a brother in Christ to be received. This is the basic intention of the apostle or basic approach to bring reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Verse 1 again. Philemon is our beloved or our beloved brother and fellow worker. They have worked together. They have had mutual ministry, mutual encouragement, and the apostle desires for this to continue while he is in prison writing the letter. In verse 2, it is also addressed to our sister. Presumably, these individuals were prominent individuals in this local church. We don't have any more information on both Philemon and Aphia. But we do have more information on Archippus. Archippus is also mentioned in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. Colossians 4, 17. And we'll come back to this chapter because of the few individuals repeated in Colossians 4 and also in Philemon. Colossians was also written while Paul was a prisoner and likely in the same period of time that he wrote this book, Philemon. Philemon and Colossians, Philippians, all together. 4.17, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Archippus received a ministry in the Lord, and the exhortation is for him to fulfill that ministry. Don't be casual about it. Don't be flippant about it. But be solemn and serious about the ministry and carry out whatever God told you to carry out. He's noted as a fellow soldier, probably because he had some battles. Probably he had some opposition in his ministry, but he did not get demoralized. He did not retreat. He did not even defect to the other side. He maintained his ground as a faithful, strong fellow soldier to withstand the onslaughts of the enemy. Verse 2, to the church in your house. The church in your house. This is the full group being addressed by this letter. In the New Testament period, in the time of the apostles, they met in the temple whenever they could, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They also met from house to house, Acts chapter 20, 
2021, they would meet house to house. They would also meet in the synagogue as often as they could, Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 3. They would also sometimes meet in another building or whatever other facility they could acquire or would accommodate them. We see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, verse 9, 19:9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. They were reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, where the school assembled. They were witnessing and teaching and preaching in that school. But when it says the church in your house, sometimes those who are ignorant and those who are fault-finding, they will say that if a church meets in the house, it's a cult. Yet, Romans 16.5 says, 16.5 of the Romans, also greet the church that is in their house. Greet the church that is in their house. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. 16, 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And also Colossians 4. Colossians 4, 15. 4.15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, Laodicea and also, also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Likewise here, they have church meetings in the house. In typical greetings, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have some grace, but we need more grace. We have some peace, but we need more peace. And the two senders of peace, who commission peace, the originators of peace are God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and the mediator who actually produces it within us is the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of peace, and He is the spirit of grace. But the originators of it are the Father and the Son. Verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. The Apostle here, as in many other places, whenever he is addressing individuals and churches, he mentions that he is thankful for them. He mentions that He is thankful for them to God and he mentions that he is thankful to them. They hear the words of thanks and God hears the words of thanks. Both do. It's not just that they think he thanks God and he never tells the people personally. 
nor is it that he only thanks the people personally and doesn't realize the giver of these good gifts is God himself. Romans 1.8, Romans 1.8 first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. This is the way we should be too. We should be thanking God constantly for the good things God gives us in our life. And in particular, the Christian witness or the Christian's who are in our life, whose faith is manifested, whose faith is displayed, whose faith is experienced by us. We see their faith. We are encouraged by their faith. It's mutual encouragement. So the Christians themselves ought to be thanked and God himself should be thanked for the presence of good examples, encouragement, help, ministry, support that we get from one another. Ultimately, the saints are agents of God. So we thank God for the saints He brings into our life. Verse 5, Because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He hears that they have love and faith. Love and faith toward Christ and toward all the saints. That's showing that they love God and they love their brother. They love God and they love their neighbor as themselves. It's shown in manifestations of love and of how their faith grows and they encourage one another mutually to grow in faith. Not to remain stagnant, not to go backwards, but to press on. So they have robust faith, and it is spilling over and encouraging others to grow and grow stronger. Because he hears that they love each other and they are growing in faith, loving Christ and loving each other, he is thankful. This is the reason he's thankful. He's not saying he's thankful for any kind of carnal reasons. He's thankful for the spiritual development he sees and hears about going on in their life. Verse 6, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. He wants what in the prayer? that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. He wants the faith and the fellowship to working together to become effective. Effective to produce more and more fruit. Effective to benefit each other. How is it, though, that this is accomplished? Is it accomplished spontaneously? Erratically, 
No. In a vacuum? No. Verse 6 says, Through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. We must grow in knowledge. We have to grow in knowledge of every good thing. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. Philippians 1, 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says that he wants real knowledge and all discernment to be in the Philippians. The same with the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1, 9 to 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This knowledge is critical. If we do not have true knowledge of the Scriptures, then we cannot know God's will, we cannot do His will, we cannot please Him. We cannot be like people who say that we don't need to know the Bible or read the Bible or study the Bible, memorize the Bible, know the Bible cover to cover, read it from Genesis to Revelation. We don't need to do any of that. That's too much. If you're saved, you're saved. You believe Jesus is your Savior, that's enough. Otherwise, move on with your life and you have a little bit of spiritual life. Yes, go to church or go to church once in a while. Read the Bible if you feel like it, but you don't really need to know the Bible because you're already saved. Discipleship is for later if you want it. But if you don't want it, it's okay. You're still saved. That's not the way he takes it here. The fellowship of faith has to become effective. It has to be producing fruit. We have to be abounding. But we cannot abound without true knowledge of every good thing. And that's only found by knowing the Word of God. Verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, Brother, he has heard, like he said in verse 5, he has heard about the good deeds, the genuine love that Philemon has towards others, and so it brings the apostle joy and comfort because he knows that he, Philemon, has encouraged the hearts of the saints. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through Philemon. 
He's been commended. And the word has spread that Philemon has been faithful, he's been righteous, he's been an encouragement, he's been very loving, he's knowledgeable, he's godly, and he's been a support, a help. All of these kinds of virtues are within Philemon, and it it encourages the Apostle Paul. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. The apostle here as well in Hebrews has heard of similar behavior, similar godly behavior. Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit their promises." Likewise, chapter 10 of Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 32 to 35, Hebrews 10, 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The apostles see this life in the saints, and it encourages them. It brings them joy and comfort. Third John 4. Third John 4. I have no greater joy than this, to see my children or to hear my children walking in the truth. Verse 8, Philemon verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. After the commendation in verses 1 to 7, especially verses 4 to 7, the commendation, he appreciates what godliness he has seen in Philemon. Yet Philemon is now going to be tested. He's going to be tested, and this is the test. Verses 8 and 9, the apostle, he wants to appeal to Philemon in order to have Onesimus return to the household of Philemon. And instead of commanding him, which he has the authority to do, instead of insisting, which he has the authority to do, instead of saying, this is what you must do, go do it. The apostle could do that, and he would not be out of line. But what does the apostle want to happen in Philemon? 
Instead of simply hearing what he ought to do and then do it, he wants to first arouse within Philemon a sincere desire for love and reconciliation. He wants that to come up and well up within Philemon so that that becomes the overwhelming motive for why Philemon acts in terms of restoration. So that's how he says it. Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper. Yes, the apostle had authority to order. But he now says he's got confidence knowing the character of Philemon that if he appeals to him, he may respond accordingly. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 and 6. 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, or 2, 5 and 6. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. There too, he could have asserted his authority and not sinned. But rather, even to the Thessalonians, he's going to appeal to them. Appeal because when he was among them, he was imploring them like a father and caring for them tenderly like a mother. As he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, verse 10. I appeal to you, what is the specific appeal? It's in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. The appeal is for the child of Paul. He means spiritual child. He does not mean literal child. Because the apostle was unmarried, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He's talking about a spiritual birth. While the apostle was imprisoned, he encountered this Onesimus, perhaps in prison, perhaps somebody else related to the prison. Maybe he was a criminal and needed to be thrown into prison temporarily. And while there, the apostle Paul met him, and evangelized him. And he believed. He believed the gospel. That's why he calls him my child. We see it as well in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 17. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. 
Acts chapter 18 records at the beginning of the chapter how the Apostle Paul ministered in the city of Corinth for 18 months, a year and a half. That's why he says here to the Corinthians that you are my beloved children. Because they came to hear the gospel and believe it under the ministry of the Apostle. The same with Onesimus. Speaking of this, are we about birthing children in Christ? Are we about that? Is that our concern? Have we that desire to preach the gospel so faithfully, so regularly, so consistently, that there are people who come to truly believe in the gospel through our witness. That should be happening. It should be happening to all of us. It shouldn't take many, many, many years before that happens. Because if we are witnessing regularly, here or there, now and then, there should be somebody coming to believe in Christ, and then we will be the parents of that new convert. Not that we're looking to be parents, but this is the way the Christian life should be. That's what we're describing here. The Christian life should be a life of begetting children, like the Apostle Paul was. When that's not happening, we have to ask, are we preaching? Are we preaching consistently? Are we preaching correctly or not? Onesimus is also mentioned in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. Let's read 7 to 9. Colossians 4, 7 to 9. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondslave in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him... Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus, according to this verse, was from the city of Colossae. And Tychicus, as well as Onesimus, Onesimus being released from prison, would be able to go back and report in Colossae what is happening. He's called a faithful and beloved brother. In our passage, he is called in verse 11, useful, or the opposite. Um, He's not useless. Who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, why would Onesimus formerly be useless? Because he was a rebel. He was a runaway slave. He wasn't doing his work. He hated doing his work. He hated being a slave. We don't know his circumstances, how it was that he became a slave, but he was a slave. But he wasn't doing it rightly. So he was useless to Philemon. Probably a big troublemaker to Philemon. And finally, he left. But now, he's useful. Why? Because of his conversion. 
He has a new heart, so he's got a new sense of respecting authority. The, the sense he never had, now he has it, to respect authority, the authority of his master. He's useful both to Philemon in two ways, physically and spiritually. This will come up later. Physically and spiritually, and also to Paul, spiritually. He's useful. Verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart. The apostle, if he were stingy, if he were greedy, if he were to circumvent the institution of slavery, he could have been tempted to keep him and just abolish slavery. But he didn't. He did not abolish. He said, I sent to you my very heart. Yes, proponents of the abolition of slavery have distorted, perverted, undermined this small letter and many other passages of Scripture, but they have distorted this. This letter does not abolish slavery. It does not even gradually abolish slavery. It's not even hinting at the abolition of slavery at all. It's not doing that at all. We'll see more evidence of that in a moment. So verse 13, Whom I wished to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. This is the reason. The apostle is a prisoner. He needs encouragement. Onesimus was encouraging him after his conversion. So... He, if he stayed, Paul could have reasoned, well, Philemon, he's really yours, but could you lend him to me? Can you prolong the reconciliation or the alienation before reconciliation? Can you prolong it so he can stay with me? But he didn't want to do that. Paul did not want to stretch it beyond reason. So verse 14, but without your consent... I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. He did not want to steal Onesimus from Philemon. He wanted the, the he did not want to impose on the goodness of Philemon. And he did not want to compel Philemon to do so. He did not want to compel him. He wanted Philemon to work voluntarily, not under compulsion. Freely, not under a mandate. That's the way the apostle is appealing to him. Clarification. When it says free will... It's not using the term free will in the sense of predestinarian doctrine or free will doctrine. It's not using it in that sense. It's using it in the sense of whether one is compelled to do something or whether one is generously wanting to do something, voluntarily wanting to do something. 
That's the way it's meant here. It is not a verse teaching free will. Because the word free will, even when we use it today in political circles, it's not being meant in the philosophical and theological way. Such as citizens should be free. They should have the free will to vote or not to vote and so forth. That's the sense in which the word free will is used, not in the philosophical and theological sense. But now, now that he is saying that he's sending Onesimus back, what is the responsibility of Philemon? If Onesimus is a repentant sinner and he's going back repenting, then what is the the obligation of Philemon? We find that answer in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In a sense, though it should be done voluntarily according to Philemon's free will, in another sense, before God, it is an obligation of Philemon. And this obligation or duty that Philemon has is to forgive a sincerely repentant man. We're talking about sincere repentance. We're not talking about sham repentance. We're not talking about insincere show. We're talking about genuine repentance. When that is forthcoming, then we should forgive, according to Matthew 6, 14 and 15. We see another place in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. In this chapter, 18, 21 to 35, the Apostle Paul, or not the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter asks the Lord about forgiveness and how often to forgive an offender. How often to forgive an offender. And a parable is presented about a slave who owed his master a lot of money. And then the master is expecting payment. The slave is unable to pay. But he goes to his other slaves, his fellow slaves, who owe him money. And he mistreats them. He treats them without mercy until they pay him everything back. Then the master, who, who is owed a lot by this one slave. We pick it up at verse 31. 1831. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, 
They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Because this wicked slave entreated the master, he petitioned the master, he repented, he went back and apologized. Because he did that, the master forgave him. But he didn't forgive his fellow slaves. This is the kind of forgiveness that Philemon should offer to Onesimus. Because when Onesimus comes back as a repentant brother, a repentant sinner, that forgiveness and reconciliation should take place. Verse 15 Verse 15, it says in Philemon 15, For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The apostle is now looking at the big picture. He's looking at the sovereignty of God. That it's no accident that Onesimus parted from Philemon for a while, met the apostle Paul, was converted, and now loves the Lord like Philemon loves the Lord. That this is not an accident. That's why he says, for perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. You'll have him back as a slave, but actually you'll have him forever because he's a brother in Christ. And when you have him back, verse 16, it won't be as a slave or only as a slave. He says more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you? Because he's going to be in the presence of Philemon, not in the presence of Paul. And Paul, remember he said earlier, he is the aged, he's a prisoner, and he's going to be executed. So he's going to be of much more benefit and value to Philemon. Now, this is a verse where the abolitionists uh, don't read it carefully. They distort it. Because when it says no longer as a slave, Paul's not saying he won't be your slave anymore. He said, he's meaning he won't be merely a slave anymore. Not merely or only a slave anymore, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me. More than a slave does not mean not a slave. Especially, look at the last half of verse 16. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Well, if he only meant as a beloved brother, that would be in the Lord. But he doesn't mean it that way because he says in the flesh. In the flesh doesn't mean in the carnal flesh. He's not talking about flesh as opposed to the spiritual man. 
the carnal man and the spiritual man. He's not using flesh in that way. Sometimes the Bible says the flesh to mean the physical body. Just like John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ became flesh. The same here is talking about in physical presence, Philemon will have Onesimus there as a physical slave and as an obedient Christian physical slave, but also much more a beloved brother in the Lord. And so their relationship will not only be restored, but abound. Now, this example we have in the book of Genesis. First, an example of separation for a purpose. Genesis 45, separation for a purpose. Though there was a tragedy, though there was heartache, though there was sin involved, the separation was for a purpose in the plan of God. Genesis 45, 5. When Joseph's brothers realize that they are standing before Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, is that Joseph is their brother. Joseph, he says this, 45.5, And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Remember the brothers of Joseph sold him as a slave? They first wanted to murder him, but they decided not to do that. They would make some money, so they sold him as a slave. And they did not know he became the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh. They didn't know that until he revealed his identity here in chapter 45. So he tells them, you sold me here, but don't be grieved about that because now realize God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great Deliverance, verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God is the one who sent the brothers in advance. The same in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 50, 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Likewise with Onesimus, the the separation, wrongful separation between Onesimus and Philemon now is restored, but now their relationship is even better similar to Joseph and his brothers. They were separated because of the brothers' sins, but now they are restored and there's harmony between all of them. We said earlier that it was likely the case that Philemon was not a ruthless and cruel master because the apostle is sending Onesimus back. How do we know that? Likely he was not. Because if he were harsh and cruel, a torturer, 
of his slave, then these scriptures would apply. Exodus 21, 26. Exodus 21, 26 to 27. 21, 26. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. Those things, if they had happened to Onesimus, because Philemon was ruthless, Paul would never have sent him back. Also, Deuteronomy 23, 23, 15, and 16. Deuteronomy 23, 15. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. This verse says that a runaway slave should not be restored to his master. But in the case of Onesimus, he is being restored to his master. The assumption in in Deuteronomy 23.15, therefore, is that the slave was being mistreated, such as we read in Exodus 21. If the slave was being tortured, mistreated, bruised and battered, as we described, as it was described in Exodus 21, 26 to 27, then there should be no restoration. He deserves to be released, to have his freedom. But if it were mistreatment, he should not go back, right? But this is what is happening with Onesimus. He is being returned to his master. Now, Upon return, verses 17 and eight, uh, 17 to 20, 17 to 20, upon the return of Onesimus, assuming that that takes place, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. That's one. Treat him like you would treat me, the apostle. Because he's a slave, because he's poor, because he previously mistreated you, Don't take any of that into consideration. Receive him equally as you would receive me. Verse 18, But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Remember, if he was gone for a while, loss of time, therefore loss of income, took place with Philemon. Philemon inevitably lost income, lost whatever value Onesimus was supposed to bring to him. So if Onesimus is too poor to restore it all, if he's unable to restore it all, the apostle says he wants to restore. He wants to pay. He wants to make the payment. 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 16 to 18. 1 John 3, 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. When there is a need, and if Onesimus has this need, Paul says, I will pay the difference. When Zacchaeus repented, when Zacchaeus repented, he knew that if he owed anybody, he ought to pay back. Luke 19, 8. Luke 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Whatever assistance Paul could render, he was willing to do so to restore the relationship. Then verses 19 and 20. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. We have encountered this before, such as at the end of the book of Galatians, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians, that the apostle says he's writing with his own hand. Why? Because there were imposters, and if the people were familiar with the handwriting of the apostle, they would know that this was the apostle's handwriting. It may be because of the book of Galatians chapter 4 that the apostle, he had poor eyesight because in Galatians 6, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So for him to see what he himself was writing, he had to write with large letters. So they would be able to know. Philemon and the others would be able to know Paul is actually writing this letter. He says, I will repay it. This is not a fraud or a false apostle. It's the Apostle Paul. Having said that, he reminds him of something important. Lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. What's Paul saying there? I've appealed to you, I'm still appealing to you, but remember, you would not be in the Lord if I had not preached the gospel to you. Yes, I planted, Apollos watered, and God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 3. That is true. But it does not minimize the fact that God did use the Apostle Paul. So he was the agent of the salvation of Philemon, and Philemon should not take that as of no account. He should consider that and be grateful to the Apostle Paul that the Apostle Paul was faithful to preach the gospel. He didn't shrink back. He didn't sleep in that day, right? He did not tremble with his knees knocking and keep his mouth closed. He opened his mouth. He woke up that day. He went to wherever Philemon was. He spoke up and he preached the gospel and Philemon was saved. That should not be discounted. Not at all. That's what he means here, that you owe to me even your own self 
as well. So this restoration the apostle is expecting should not be considered by Philemon to be a heavy load. He should be very happy, very diligent to do so. It's similar to this in Romans 15, 27. Romans 15, 27. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. The spiritual, in every circumstance, takes precedence priority over the material. How did the spiritual take place? So honor the one who preached the gospel to you so that you were saved. Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. An additional desire, as he said earlier, he's already been refreshed. An additional desire, verse 7, Refreshed through you, brother. And again here, he wants to be refreshed in his spirit, in his soul, by seeing the godly fruit in Philemon. Then verses 21 to 22. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. He already knows the character of Philemon, so that's why he says he has confidence that Philemon will obey. And not only do what is requested in this appeal, but even beyond it. Whatever Paul didn't mention, he's going to think of creative ways, Philemon being one who is diligent and eager to do the will of God and to help the people of God, He's got confidence that Philemon is going to go beyond it. Not nitpick and say, what exactly did you say? And not go any more or any less. There are people that way. It shouldn't be that way. It should be with uh, overflowing desire to go all out. That should be the, the mentality. Paul knows Philemon is that way. And... Paul knows Philemon is hospitable. He has the means and is hospitable. Prepare me a lodging. This means that Philemon must be hospitable, but the Apostle Paul must be willing to stay with him. It's a two-way street whenever hospitality is offered. Whenever that's not, no hospitality or no desire to be hosted, then there's something amiss. There's sin somewhere. Verses 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Remember we said that there's similarities with these individuals between this letter and Colossians. Epaphras is mentioned in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. 
1.7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras went to the city of Colossae to preach the gospel. And here he is also called my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Thrown into prison with him. Mark, verse uh, 24, verse 24 mentions Mark. Who is this Mark? In the scripture, in the New Testament, this Mark is usually just, just one Mark who is first mentioned in Acts 12, verse 12, 12, 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This, is, this man is sometimes called John Mark. This John Mark, perhaps his name Mark was more commonly used because there were several Johns in the first century. There was John the Baptist. There was John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So perhaps that's why his name Mark was used. Mark was one of the early disciples. At this point, he is faithful. There was a time when he was unfaithful. Acts 13.13 mentions this, that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Acts 13.13. And this John is the same John also called Mark. Aristarchus 24 also mentions this man, Aristarchus. He is mentioned as well in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So these are all in prison with Paul. Demas, verse 24 mentions Demas. Demas is also in Colossians 4, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Luke is also in in Philemon 4, I'm sorry, Philemon verse 24, who are called my fellow workers. It seems, therefore, that Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus or at least Epaphras and Aristarchus were fellow prisoners with Paul. And Demas and Luke were there, but not imprisoned. We also note that at some point, though Demas is mentioned favorably here, by the time of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Demas deserted Paul. Which means that within a couple of years, if the apostle was released from the prison for a short time and then re-imprisoned and after that executed, it was during that short period of time, maybe two or three years, that Demas defected and walked away from the faith. May it not happen to us. May we be fellow workers and may we have the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ upon our spirit always. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.